I would go so far as to say that chest compressions are largely useless in a traumatic etiology of arrest. And it's not only that I don't think they provide benefit, it's that I think they have the potential to provide harm to that patient because they get in the way of the things that are important. I'm James Gould, and this is The Recess Course. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about traumatic cardiac arrest. The word cardiac arrest, I think, sort of triggers this image of someone doing CPR. The trigger for I don't have a pulse is oftentimes to jump on the chest and start doing compressions. And I think that what we're going to learn in this podcast and in talking to our guest is that not all dead people are alike. And broad strokes, I think we need to think a little bit differently about how we approach these patients. We're really lucky to have back on the show Dr. Nick Sowers to talk about this. Nick's done a, a great deal of work on the topic. He's recently presented a provincial webinar on the topic. We will link that in the show notes. Nick's an assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine. He's a trauma team leader, trauma consultant, and a critical care transport physician. One of the best physicians I've had the pleasure of working with, and I thank him for being back on the show. Thanks for being here, Nick. Thanks for having me, James. You always give like, Look, the, the most glowing introductions. <laughs> Listen, man, you deserve it. Look, let's start by saying there's something different about these patients, and you do a really good job at in in your content that you've produced on on describing that. And if you could give the listeners one piece of advice, if you could say the most important thing that you need to know about management of traumatic cardiac arrest is this. What's the what's the next sentence? The, the most important thing you need to know about traumatic cardiac arrest is you need to think mechanistically. And that's the fundamental difference between traumatic cardiac arrest and medical cardiac arrest. In medical cardiac arrest, we have pocket cards that we're all given very early in our training and we follow those and we have algorithms. And that involves lots of things that we're going to talk about, like chest compressions and airway management and a bunch of medications that may or may not work. Traumatic cardiac arrest is, is special. And the way to be successful or successfully resuscitate these patients is to think about it mechanistically in the sense of why did this patient arrest? What is the underlying mechanism for that? Because it's only an understanding the underlying mechanism on an individual patient basis for why they have arrested that you can tailor that individual patient's resuscitation and hopefully be successful. Yeah, well said. Look, let's start with a case just to sort of frame the type of patient that we're talking about. So imagine it's two in the morning, you get a patch from EMS, there's a 25-year-old guy being brought in from downtown. He's been stabbed three times in the left chest. He has a GCS of 13, a heart rate of 130, blood pressure of 70 on 30, SATs of 90% on a non-rebreather. EHS are 10 minutes from your hospital, and so you have a bit of time to prepare. So how do you prepare for a case like this? It's a great question. There's probably, there's probably two answers to it. One is your preparation started years ago, months ago, weeks ago. It was on your walk to work that day. When you get a radio patch of five minutes out, 10 minutes out, something like this, you don't have time to, to think about this in any great detail to process a lot of that information for the, for the first time and to synthesize a plan. It has to be reflexive. Um, and it can only be that way if you've invested the, the time both into 
training and the procedural training in how to resuscitate these patients, but cognitively in how to approach this. What do you say to the team? How do you prepare the room? How do you prepare yourself? How do you think about this? And so your preparation for this case starts, you know, on your walk to work as you're thinking about, well, what's going to happen? What would I do if a chest stabbing came in? And they were really unstable. What are the potential mechanisms for that? What are the interventions for that? How am I going to prioritize those things in order of importance? So philosophically, your preparation, you know, it's, it's something that I think we have to be doing as a cognitive exercise all of the time so that we're ready when these cases come in. And more acutely, your preparation, when you do get that radio patch and have less than 10 minutes notice, you know, is essentially you can break it down into, into people, equipment, and communication. Um, and people is start calling for help. So depending on where you are, you know, you're going to activate for trauma team. You're going to get the members of the trauma team there, but recognize that in a five to 10 minute window, you may be starting this resuscitation on, on your own without the trauma team. If you have concerns that there is a penetrating chest injury, have a low threshold to involve the surgical specialties that ultimately may play a significant role in resuscitating that patient, whether that's cardiac surgery, thoracic surgery, or cardiac anesthesia. The things list is, you know, you know what your airway equipment to the bedside, you want advanced vascular access there and ready. So IO access, IV access, and you have people that are delegated to those tests ahead of time. So you don't have to, to be thinking about that after the patient has arrived. You want to make sure that there's blood available. And then finally is communication. So if you have a window of five minutes before this patient arrives, you need to, I think, appropriately pre-brief your team as to what they can expect when that patient arrives. And so a patient who's been stabbed in the chest with those sort of vital signs, it's probably equally likely that they're going to arrive really unstable or in a state of cardiac arrest. This is the one where ahead of time, you're going to pre-brief your team and say, listen, we're going to move this patient over to our stretcher as quickly as possible. And our immediate priorities are going to be put oxygen on the patient, get some sort of vascular access, get a set of vital signs, and get a very experienced provider to the side of the bed to assess those injuries. And a big part of that assessment is, you know, get an ultrasound in there, have a look at the patient's lungs, have a look at the, at the chest. You want to also be thinking in the back of your mind, and again, this kind of goes back to that idea of what do I or how do I cognitively prepare for this over months and years before this patient comes in, is you're thinking mechanistically, what is the potential reason why this patient's unstable? If you've been stabbed in the left chest and your heart rate's 130 and your blood pressure is 70, well, the most likely explanation for that is you have a tension pneumothorax or you have pericardial tamponade and hemorrhage being number three. So how do we prepare for that? Patient, when they come in, well, we recognize the injury pattern that this patient has typically associates with it with a number of pathologies and how do we manage that? So this is a patient where when they arrive and we're doing our initial assessment and we're putting an ultrasound on and we're trying to figure out what we think is going on, we're not then making the decision to go get a chest tube tray and get instruments open and prepare for that. This is a patient where chest tube trays are open, they're on tables before that patient arrives where a thoracotomy tray is out and on the table and open before the patient arrives, if that's appropriate to the center that you're working in. So that when you make the determination say, well, this patient's hemodynamically unstable with left chest stab wound, and we put an ultrasound on them in two seconds and see, one, there's either no lung sliding and therefore this is a tension pneumo to approve and otherwise. 
you just have to reach slightly to one side to pick up the scalpel and the instruments you're required to decompress that chest and start putting a chest tube. Or if you do the same ultrasound exam and they have, say, for example, a pericardial tamponade and they have arrested, you can reach over, pick up that initial instrument to start your thoracotomy. And then one of the last things that I try to do is I try to reassure the team that this is going to be stressful. It has the potential to be chaotic, but we're not going to let it. And so we're going to focus on controlled volume communication. We're going to focus our directed communication towards wherever the resuscitation leader is at the foot of the bed and use closed loop communications. Everyone understands what's going on. If you have that inkling that that patient's moving towards a traumatic arrest or has arrested immediately pre-hospital, and we're going to work right through, through that traumatic arrest algorithm, you need to communicate very clearly with the team what we're going to do, but also what we're not going to do. And one of the things we're not going to do is immediately jump on the chest and start doing CPR. I have found in my practice, the nurses I work with, paramedics I work with, the physicians I work with are, are usually very good about the idea of deprioritizing CPR and traumatic arrest as long as someone has given permission to the room to do that. So you just have to be the person that says, listen, this is not a medical cardiac arrest. It is traumatic in nature. The mechanism of that dictates that we're going to do the following things and we're going to deprioritize chest compressions and CPR. So if that patient's getting CPR well, from the paramedics when they first arrive, we're going to stop and we're going to do the following things. Or if the patient arrests in front of us, we're not going to jump on the chest and start doing CPR. We're going to do the following things. Many practitioners in the room, the ones that I work with who are an exceptional group of people, are usually very comfortable with that idea. Once someone has said it out loud and kind of given permission to the team to, to shift gears and think slightly differently. Yeah. Yeah. It links really well into that idea of like what goes into a good pre-brief of that team too, right? Like, you know, here's what we know, here's what we expect. And, and, you know, obviously we expect them to be very sick and, and you've outlined very well the priorities and management of that patient. But then they're like, what might change? Like the, you know, the patient might die um, either on their way in or, or by the time they get here. And, and that's a significant cognitive shift in that patient's management. So I think it's you know super important, as you outlined, to, to really emphasize how the plan will change so that everyone has the, has the same shared mental model for what happens next. Nick, let's imagine you've done all the right stuff. You've prepared well for this patient to arrive and you, you heard the vital signs. The patient rolls in and as they're coming out of the ambulance bay and rolling into the, into the resuscitation room, vital signs are lost. How does this play out? What does it look like? That's a great question. Again, as I said at the very beginning, the most important thing is to think mechanistically. So if you have someone who has a traumatic injury or is involved in a trauma and they have an arrest, what are the underlying reasons why that's going to occur? And, and there's, really, there's, there's really four categories. It's, it's hypovolemic shock from blood loss. It's obstructive shock from either a tension pneumo or pericardial tamponade. It's a catastrophic CNS injury or it's hypoxemia. And, and usually the hypoxemic ones are going to be from the loss of, a, of an airway, so a primary airway injury or anterior neck injury. Um, in this particular case that you've outlined, you know, we can, we can cross two of those off pretty quickly. And so what am I going to do? I need to figure out, is it obstructive shock or is it hemorrhage while concurrently resuscitating against those two things? But the resuscitation approach to me of a traumatic arrest, all-cause traumatic arrest is, 
is airway, chest, hemorrhage control. And so someone put oxygen on the patient, provide some ventilatory support to that patient. And you'll take note, I didn't say intubation because intubation is, I think, rarely an immediate priority for this patient population. You can make, I think, a really valid argument in those who are the primary airway injury based patients for those with anterior neck trauma, that's maybe a separate group. But if you are a cardiac arrest or traumatic cardiac arrest because you got stabbed in the chest, a plastic tube in your trachea is not a priority. Oxygenation is a priority. And so whether that's with a bag mass ventilator, whether you stick an eye gel in the patient and, and, and bag them through that, but just some source of high flow oxygen that can be done quickly by any number of practitioners in the room. Is, is a priority. You want to be cognizant, I think, about not overventilating, hyperventilating these patients and then being aware about what positive pressure ventilation does to the hemodynamics of someone who is in cardiac arrest or potentially just so hemodynamically unstable that you can't feel a peripheral pulse. The next step is chest. So again, we're thinking very quickly, mechanistically, what's potentially going on with this patient. Is this a tension pneumothorax? Is this a pericardial tamponade that's causing shock or an obstructive shock within the chest? Or is it purely that they're hemorrhaging into the chest or stab wounds? And the easiest way to investigate that is with a bedside ultrasound. In a couple of seconds, you can put an ultrasound probe on someone's chest and say, is there lung sliding? Yes or no. And if there's no lung sliding, well, then there's a tension pneumothorax until proven otherwise. That chest needs to be decompressed. And maybe that's with a finger thoracostomy and then ultimately a chest tube placement. Put the ultrasound probe slightly lower and have a look at the heart. But if you go down and see a large pericardial effusion or what is ultimately clot sitting in the pericardial space, obstructing the heart's cardiac output, well, that patient needs that obstructive shock released. Last thing that that tells you, or the third thing I said that it tells you, it tells you whether there's cardiac activity or not. And we're going to come back to that in a, in a few minutes, but that's an important piece of information to know early on in your resuscitation of this patient. Other causes, other etiologies, other cases of traumatic arrest, maybe not the chest stabbing, but any trauma patient that arrests, I continue the same pathway. Have a quick look at the chest for obstructive sources of shock. Move down to the abdomen. Is there free fluid in the belly? Does the pelvis feel unstable? What do the femurs look like? Bind pelvises, pull on femurs and straighten them out. And then ultimately get vascular access and immediately start giving blood products to these patients. Yeah, it's, it's a nice approach because it gives us a sort of a finite number of things that we can do. Make sure they have a patent airway, oxygenate them, decompress the chest, plus minus thoracotomy, give some blood, plus minus bind the pelvis. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. One question I have for you on that, just in terms of the a sequence of events. So someone rolls in, let's say someone's got an eye gel in. You feel like they're adequately ventilating. You've applied oxygen. Patient gets put over onto the bed. There's kind of a decision point here. In the pathway that you're describing, you're putting the ultrasound probe in the chest and you're deciding tension pneumothorax or not, pericardial effusion or not. What do you think about the idea of just like bilateral finger thoracostomies immediately and then focus your ultrasound on looking at the heart? It's probably a, a short period of time that you're delaying the, the finger thoracostomy and you, you might end up doing finger thoracostomies on people that never had attention to thorax, but they're dead anyway. Does it, you know, what do you think about that? It's a very, it's a very reasonable, my, my concern with it, and it's a minor concern. My concern with it is that if you, if you had someone with, with the injury pattern you described in this case, so left chest stab wounds, 
you know, who's maybe equally likely to have a tension pneumo as a pericardial tamponade, if they're arrested in front of you, can you put an ultrasound on and in two seconds can see that there's a, there's fluid or clot around the heart, then the harm potentially, and I, I don't even want to say harm, but the, the harm potentially in, in doing an empiric finger thoracostomy is the, is the delay to doing the thoracotomy that that introduces. And obviously a thoracotomy is not the way to decompress tension pneumo, but it will. And so if you, if you have a pericardial tamponade as the etiology to your, to your arrest, if we started with bilateral finger thoracostomies, then whatever time it took to do that finger thoracostomy and then do the ultrasound of the, of the heart and make that decision to then open the chest, whatever that delay is that's there, however much more time that is than the time to start the thoracotomy, it probably all kind of depends on the, on the scenario. Do you have a very skilled, experienced operator? who is yeah. doing the finger thoracostomy and an equally skilled operator who's doing the ultrasound, in which case that yeah. finger thoracostomy goes really quickly. Are you a single operator who's responsible for doing both of those things? Yeah, that's sort of my, my take on it. I, I think the the delay is probably small, but again, I think there's very little downside in doing finger thoracostomies. In fact, I don't think a traumatic arrest should be called before you have bilateral finger thoracostomies. Right. That's obviously a little different than doing a thoracotomy on, on everybody. I think, you know, I think the way you propose it's very reasonable. I think an alternative approach of a quick look at the heart and lung is also equally reasonable. Yeah. I'd probably make that decision based on who's there and how quickly can we get all these things done. Totally. Yeah. It's gotta be context dependent, right? Like if you have the, the what I'm imagining is the, just the environment that we both work in and that's not the reality for a lot of people, right? So I'm imagining that we've got, you know, a surgeon on both sides of, of, of the bed as the patient rolls in and a, and a third provider, just because we're so lucky we have all of these people, you know, a third provider with an ultrasound in their hand. And as soon as the patient goes onto the bed, you know, we know they're dead. The finger thoracostomies are happening at the same time as the, as the ultrasound of the heart. And so in, in, in that context, there, there shouldn't be a delay in identifying pericardial tamponade and you're identifying it at the moment that you're also decompressing the chest. But, you know, that's just a, yeah. not a realistic context for in a lot of, in a lot of institutions and a lot of scenarios. So totally appreciate and, and, and like your approach as well. Well, I think, and it's, and I agree, and it's, and I think one of the things that we want to be clear about is that we're, we're very purposefully using the term finger thoracostomy. And, and we're not talking about putting a chest tube on or putting a chest tube in and putting a dressing on or sewing it in, you know, yeah. the, the time and that goes to, to placing a chest tube is anyone who's ever done a chest tube knows a lot of the time is putting the plastic tube in and securing it. That's not what's happening in a traumatic arrest. Remember that plastic tube is not a resuscitative intervention. It's the decompressing the chest. That's a resuscitative intervention. And so with a skilled operator, they can get into the chest and decompress that chest to, to the room really, really quickly. And while we're having a skilled operator do that, we can be very quickly looking at the heart. And in which case, if we're moving on to other high priorities, we may not be putting a chest tube in immediately in that moment and putting the dressing on. So we want to be clear, I guess, about what we're talking yeah. about is, is decompressing the chest, not necessarily the time it takes to put that chest tube in and dressing. Yeah, totally. 
of all of the things we've talked about so far, it's only been mentioned a few times is is performing chest compressions and and doing CPR and, and all of the things that go along with ACLS. I mean, we have a, a patient who's dead in front of us. Can you talk a little bit about when, you know, it, is CPR appropriate? What are the downsides of doing CPR? Should we be doing CPR? All the things that go with chest compressions in this in this context. Yeah, it's a great question. The in the very beginning, I used the phrase deprioritize CPR. And, and that's the, the terminology that you'll find in the literature, because I think that is as far as we are able to go yet without upsetting too many people who think we should be doing <laughs> chest compressions when it doesn't make sense to do chest compressions. But if you think about traumatic arrest, again, in a mechanistic framework, what does a chest compression do? Well, I would argue it doesn't really do anything. In a medical cardiac arrest, like good high quality CPR, you know, gets a cardiac output that's somewhere maybe 25 or 30% of what that patient's baseline cardiac output is. Like it's not great. It's, it's enough that it may, you know, maintain some organ perfusion and coronary perfusion in a medical arrest. And it's certainly better than nothing. But chest compressions in a euvolemic patient who does not have a source of obstructive shock still only manifests very limited cardiac output. If you have a traumatic arrest and the mechanism of your arrest is either one in which your heart is being crushed from some obstructive etiology like a tension pneumo or pericardial tamponade, the cardiac output from chest compressions is going to be minimal. If you have someone who's arrested from hypovolemic shock and hemorrhage and there's literally no blood return going into the right side of the heart, then the output from the left with chest compressions is going to be minimal. I say that in the room and say, we're going to deprioritize chest compressions and we're going to stop CPR if it is, if it's ongoing and the patient arrives. But I would go so far as to say that chest compressions are largely useless in a traumatic etiology of arrest. And it's so much so um, that it's not only that I don't think they provide benefit, it's that I think they have the potential to provide harm to that patient because they get in the way of the things that are important. So if you have someone doing chest compressions on a traumatic arrest patient, it's really difficult to decompress that chest and alleviate the tension pneumothorax. It's really difficult to manage that patient's oxygenation and ventilation. It's really difficult to get vascular access, and it's really difficult to do a thoracotomy if that's ultimately what this patient needs. Now, are you going to find a high quality randomized controlled trial that supports that? Absolutely not. And you're never going to, because it's not exactly the kind of thing that we can do randomized control trials on. It's something that we're going to see low quality evidence, like animal-based studies or lab studies. And there are several of those around that support exactly what I just said, or you're going to approach this with a good, strong understanding of the underlying physiology and mechanism of why the patient arrested. Um, and use physiologic principles to dictate your resuscitation steps. So to me, if you are a traumatic cardiac arrest, I stop CPR right away. I don't start CPR. I go through that algorithm as we've addressed and addressed, again, mechanistically, the interventions that I think are going to be useful for that patient, alleviating obstructive shock, replacing volume loss, stopping active hemorrhage, if we're able to do that in the emergency department. And then if none of those things work, then we'll get to the point to say, all right, we've done all of these things in the emergency department. That's the point where I'll say, all right, we can now start chest, close chest compressions. 
The one caveat to that is open chest compression. So if you have done a thoracotomy, doing open chest compression or cardiac massage in a heart that you're either have repaired or are temporizing an injury, a primary cardiac injury, while active volume resuscitation is ongoing, that's a separate thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well said. I mean, I think that over the next 10, 15 years, I think we're going to start realizing and the literature is starting to support this idea that asynchronous chest compressions might actually be harmful. And we've always, I think, sort of hung our hats on the idea in cardiac arrest that you might as well do chest compressions, probably not going to harm the patient. But in this situation, there's a few reasons why it it doesn't make sense, but also may get in the way. And then the, I think it's the additional thing that I'll add to that is the, the literature that's showing asynchronous chest compressions being potentially harmful, I think, lies in the idea that Oftentimes, we're actually just compressing the left ventricular outflow tract. The TEE literature, actually looking at the heart when providers doing chest compressions, has really brought to light the idea that we're oftentimes not compressing the LV and we're just like obstructing blood flow when we when we do compression. So, you know, there's a lot of harm that might actually come from doing chest compressions, broad strokes for cardiac arrest that have, you know, specifically in, in the patient populations with beating hearts and, and just even more reason why in the traumatic arrest that it might be, might be harmful. Yeah. And if you're ever looking, I totally agree. And if you're ever, if you're ever looking for a reference or a publication that, that supports that idea, maybe not to the, to the extremes at which I just described it, but supports the idea of deprioritizing CPR in favor of taking a more mechanistic approach to resuscitating these patients. The European resuscitation guidelines on traumatic cardiac arrest very clearly outline the idea of deprioritizing CPR in these patients. Yeah. What about the other ACLS stuff? I mean, you know, presumably if someone has, you know, VT or VF or some shockable rhythm, you're going to, you're just going to do what you normally do and shock them. What about, you know, what about shocks? What about epi? Yes. Great question. You know, if you have a, as you said, if you have a, a blunt chest injury and the patient has, you know, commotion cortis and, and is in a, a ventricular dysrhythmia, then you know, obviously you're going to treat that as you would any other dysrhythmia and then immediately shock that patient. Otherwise, from a ACLS algorithm perspective, to my knowledge, there's no, there's no evidence that shows any sort of benefit of using epinephrine, for example, in a, in a traumatic arrest scenario. And again, it's something that you're not you're not going to see the randomized control trial that looks specifically at this, but there's not evidence that that supports that, and then the lower quality evidence that looks at again sort of lab based studies or animal based studies. One in particular that looked at animal models who were hemorrhage models and looked at the difference in cardiac output and ROSC, comparing chest compressions, comparing whole blood transfusions, comparing epinephrine, comparing saline, and then combinations of those things. And what they showed was CPR does not lead to RASC and epinephrine did not lead to RASC. In fact, what led to return to spontaneous circulation was the administration of whole blood volume resuscitation and to a lesser degree crystalloid resuscitation, again, because they mechanistically address the underlying reasons why this patient has arrested in the place. So I, I don't give epinephrine. I put epinephrine sort of in the same category of uh, we've done all the things that I think are potentially going to be useful for this patient. And we've reached that point in the resuscitation where you have to make a decision to say, are we going to terminate our resuscitation efforts 
and debrief the situation? Or are we going to move, you know, into an ACLS based algorithm and do some closed chest compressions and or epinephrine for potentially a short window of time? Point. Look, you talked about thoracotomy already a little bit. There's lots of different, I don't want to say guidelines, but there's a lot of different suggestive criteria as to when you should do this. And it ranges from you know, ranges from mechanism to time, sense of rest to location of arrest. You know, what what are your indications for doing a thoracotomy? Like how do you frame this in your mind to, to actually make the decision to, to do it? Yeah, it's a great question. So there's there are guidelines, you know, East guidelines, the West Cut and Trauma Association guidelines, and, and they all look at some similar factors and some different factors, but but they tend to categorize patients based on mechanism, so penetrating versus blunt, based on signs of life, based on, on time from arrest till the initiation of the thoracotomy. There's a number of characteristics that they use to try and make those decisions of should we do this or should we not do this. I tend to think of it as, as not necessarily a black and white decision making process, but as like a very gray scale in that there are scenarios where you can add up factors that are present and then things that you can, you can see and you can know immediately. I tend to think that there's a scale where on one end, you very clearly shouldn't do it. And on the other end, you very clearly should do it. So I tend to err on the side of saying, well, I'm more likely to do a thoracotomy if this was a penetrating chest mechanism. I'm more likely to do it if the downtime or the loss of pulse time is very short. I'm more likely to do it if there were, if there are signs of life or if there very recently were signs of life. And the way I approach that is I ask myself the question, if I were to do a thoracotomy on this patient, do I think it's going to help? Which is, you know, do I see a pericardial fusion on the ultrasound that I, is likely a tamponade that I can release? Do I think that they have hemorrhage within the chest that I can try and get source control of? The second thing that I look for is I want to know whether there's organized cardiac activity on the ultrasound. And the reason why I want to know that is because in traumatic cardiac arrest, it is important, I think, to divide patients into two categories. There's are those in cardiac arrest who are in cardiac standstill. And there are those who are in cardiac arrest who have organized cardiac activity, but do not have a palpable pulse. And what that really means is that they're in a state of pseudo-PEA. And pseudo-PEA is a situation where that patient has organized electrical activity, organized mechanical activity of the heart on an ultrasound that is likely resulting in cardiac output, but that cardiac output is below the threshold of which you will palpate a peripheral pulse. And the difference between those two things is that a patient in cardiac standstill is dead. A patient in pseudo-PEA is not quite dead, but almost dead. They are in a state at which they are so hemodynamically unstable and so hypotensive that they cannot manifest a peripheral pulse that you can palpate. But there is a fundamental difference between your likelihood of being able to resuscitate someone in pseudo-PEA uh, versus those who are on cardiac standstill. There's a systematic review and a meta-analysis by Tran et al. I want to say maybe two years ago, but I think is a, is a 
really, really important study that looked at features or characteristics of traumatic arrest patients and trying to figure out what's predictive of survival in traumatic arrest. The one piece of information that was like an outlier compared to anything else was whether or not there was organized cardiac activity in an ultrasound with an odds ratio of 34 for survival with thoracotomy as compared to those patients in cardiac standstill. To me, this is practice changing information so much so that I try not to do a thoracotomy without knowing what the heart was doing. Because if the patient comes in and they're in cardiac standstill, that, that patient's dead. And your resuscitation efforts are incredibly unlikely to, to save that patient. And specifically, a thoracotomy is incredibly unlikely to save that patient. Is that worth the potential harm in doing a thoracotomy? And when I say harm in doing the thoracotomy, it's, you know, what are the resources required to do it? What are the risks to providers from needle sticks and injuries and exposures to blood parts and all that sort of stuff? that we have to, to keep in mind. You know, I have a, but not a, a, a huge experience with, with ED thoracotomies. I think it's a reasonable level of experience, certainly for a center where we don't do a ton of thoracotomies, but the number of thoracotomies that I've been involved with, probably about 25% of them have ultimately involved a, a resident or some other provider getting a needle stick injury and ultimately the stress that, that comes from that. So it's not a benign intervention. I think that the ultrasound and that trans meta analysis, I think was a, was a practice changing publication for me. That ultrasound and that decision of, you know, go, no go, whether or not there's cardiac activity or not, that's the fundamental decision point to, yeah. to me. Yeah, I love it. So like, ultrasound probe in hand, the patient comes in, um, I put the probe on their chest, the heart's not beating, I'm done. So that's a branch point for me. They come in, I put the ultrasound probe on their chest, the heart is beating, now I've got a decision to make, and I'm talking specifically in terms of a thoracotomy. There's fluid around the heart, and the heart is beating, it's a go. There is no fluid around the heart, but with my finger thoracostomies on both sides, I get blood back. That's the bleeding in the chest that you're going to try to control, and that's a go? Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's pretty reasonable. I would say, you know, as, as you've said, if the heart's beating and there's a tamponade, you open the chest. If yeah. the heart's beating, but there's no effusion and no tamponade, I think it's worthwhile to say, listen, I'm going to do that finger thoracostomy first yeah. and make sure that there's not a tension pneumo that will be, you know, decompressed by doing that. If you do that and you don't, you know, regain, you know, dramatically improved circulation, in which case you now gain the information to say this was not an obstructive etiology of shock, it was likely hemorrhagic, then, then yeah, now you're in a decision pathway to say, all right, am I going to open the chest to try and get source control within the chest, which is a little bit more of a, of a nuanced decision because I think you can make the argument to say, you know, do I want to give this a, a, a short window of time to say, well, what happens if I get two units of blood poured into them, do they start getting a, a more palpable pulse pack? But, you know, there's, there's a little bit of a gray area there that I think, especially in a, in a center where you may not have a lot of experience with, with doing thoracotomies. I think that's very reasonable given the, the, the rarity of this situation and the stress that, that it, that it involves. But yeah, to me, if the heart's beating and, and there's no pulse and I put a, do a finger thoracostomy and I just get blood back. 
then you know that patient needs horse control within the chest while concurrently getting active volume resuscitation. Yeah. Yeah, well said. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about thoracotomy. Logistically, how do you do this? What's the essential equipment that you need? And then quickly in a few steps, you know, what are the what are the pearls and pitfalls? Yeah, that's a great question. So the logistically the most important thing you need to do is identify the most skilled operator in the room. That's going to range at our center anywhere from the emergency attending to a senior general surgery resident to a cardiac surgery attending. Uh, all kind of depends on the, on the time window. What hopefully will happen from an operator perspective, because we have made those phone calls early, is that the most experienced operator in the room will change as that resuscitation goes on. So ideally, to me, if I have 10 minutes or less warning that this patient is coming and they arrest and there are features there that, that a thoracotomy is, is an appropriate intervention, there's a moment where I might be the most appropriate operator or most experienced operator in the room. And that may mean that I get the chest open and I get the pericardium open and the heart out of the pericardium and I leave that tamp dead or I start identifying for hemorrhage control. And at some point through that process, someone else will arrive, whether that's a cardiac surgery resident, whether it's a cardiac surgery attending staff. Uh, and I'm very quickly then going to, to hand over to step aside and become the assistant in that procedure and hand over to their surgical expertise. Logistically, have thoracotomy trays and instrument trays prepared and ready and bundled. And that's what we do in our department. And, and James, a lot of that's through, through your organization. Um, we have thoracotomy trays that are available that we can grab off of the carts and shelves and have open and out on tables and, and ready to go. The equipment you need is pretty minimal. You need a, a 10 blade scalpel, you need a pair of scissors, and, and ideally a, a rib spreader or, or at least a pair of bone cutters or scissors that you can cut through a rib and ideally a large pair of forceps to, to help manage the, the pericardium. So you can do this with pretty minimal instruments. Let's say you go ahead and, and do the thoracotomy and you've the, you know, you, you find tamponade, you relieve it, and then you find a hole in the, in the right ventricle. What's the best way to fix that? Or, or do you fix it? Just put a finger on it, suture it, staple it. Put a Foley in it. What are, uh, what's your current thought process on that? Yeah, again, it's, it's a great question. I think the answer will change depending on, on who you ask. As a non-surgeon, if I open the chest and I open the pericardium and, and alleviate tamponade and find a hole in the right ventricle, I'm going to put my finger in the hole or I'm going to position my hands in such a way that the hole lies against the palm of one hand and, it, and is, is occluded by the palm of one hand because I'm doing cardiac massage from the opposite side of the heart with the other hand, it's sort of squeezing against my hands. But I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try and put a Foley in, I'm not gonna try and suture it or staple it, I'm gonna leave it alone, but I'm gonna recognize that you need to, you need to plug that hole and, and often do cardiac massage while aggressive volume resuscitation is underway. So I'm gonna keep it simple, I'm not gonna do something that is going to maybe make things more difficult for the cardiac surgery staff when they arrive in a few minutes. I'm literally just going to put my finger in that hole and do cardiac massage. Realistically, if you have a patient who has a penetrating cardiac injury and they have arrested from pericardial tamponade, the important thing for you to do is, is to release that obstructive shock, to get the heart out of the pericardium, to get that clot out of the way, to occlude that hole and to do cardiac massage. That's the important stuff. Uh, so I tend not to try and overcomplicate it. I try not to get, you know, a bunch of sharp objects down into that space. 
that I'm going to stab myself with if I don't need to. I'm just going to stick my finger in the hole and I'm going to do cardiac massage and wait for one of my cardiac surgery colleagues to get there. Yeah. I mean, it's a good point that the, in general, this is a procedure that is reserved to be done in an institution that has cardiovascular or cardiothoracic surgery available. And in most institutions, including ours, I think it's fair to say that they have coverage in-house, just given the nature of, of what they do and their post-operative patients and that kind of thing. Um, and so the availability of these people is pretty quick. By the time you've, you know, we as providers have gotten to, into the chest, our job is really to just to relieve the tamponade and put our finger on on the hole. And, and by that time, someone's actually at the bedside or going to be at the bedside in moments to actually do something that they do pretty routinely in terms of sort of fixing holes. And they might not be able to, it might need to be something they go to the operating room for. But I think it's fair to say that what our job is, is, is as you described, and the, the additional sort of fixing the problem and fixing the hole and closing it is sort of probably could do more harm than good. One question I have for you is just around the method that is used for doing the thoracotomy. There's the classic anterior lateral thoracotomy, and then there's this bilateral clamshell. And if you look at the evidence, and there's not a lot of it, but I've looked through some of it, and I imagine you have as well, in comparing these two techniques, a lot of cadaver-based sort of studies, but what is sort of hashed out in the literature is that a clamshell seems to be quicker than a lateral, anterior lateral, left-sided technique. And when you look at the population and nanos of merge in 2021, there was a study that was published that looked at success rates between surgical providers and emergency physicians. And what they found was that emergency physicians tended to have greater success by a pretty significant margin when a clamshell was done immediately. I don't know what the right answer is, but I'm interested in, in what your thoughts are. Should all these patients just get a clamshell right off the bat? Is that something that you reserve for the patient that you don't get good exposure? What are your thoughts there? Yes, great question. I don't, uh, I, as you're telling me that, I'm trying to think about what my answer is or what my practice is. I, I can't say that I uniformly clamshell or would univer uniformly clamshell everyone. Yeah. Part of the way I would think about it is that I think your options are you either clamshell everyone, or if you're doing a left-sided, then you need to remember to do a finger thoracostomy on the right to make yeah. sure that you're not missing something on the right chest. I also probably think about them differently if it's a stab wound versus a gunshot. And that I think I'm more likely to clamshell immediately if it's a gunshot wound because of the, the to me, increased likelihood that that projectile is going gonna, is gonna to traverse through both sides of the chest or has a likelihood of causing injury to both sides of the chest. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but that's kind of maybe one of the ways in which I would think about it. Like if you, you know, I've, I've I've been involved in thoracotomies where you do a left lateral and you've got great access to the, to the heart and that's totally sufficient for what you need to do. And I've done other ones where it's difficult access and you struggle a little bit, in which case we've converted them to a, to a clamshell. I would say, I know the evidence that you're, you're talking about, and I think yeah, across the board for an emergency physician, it probably favors doing a clamshell. I can't say that I do that uniformly, I would say I probably favor doing that in, in gunshot wounds based on the, the ballistics involved compared to stab wounds. But I would say that, you know, just to remind people, if you're doing a left lateral only to make sure that you don't forget the right chest and you're not missing, you know, attention pneumo on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great answer. I like that. All right. 
listen, Nick, we've come to the end of the podcast. Are there any last words of wisdom that you want to impart on our listeners as it relates to traumatic arrest? I mean, we've sat here for an hour talking about this drinking coffee as if it's like a, you know, a, a casual thing, but it's, but it's really not. Remember, this is, in, this is incredibly tough. It's incredibly stressful. The fact that it happens very rarely makes all of that, you know, amplified. There's a, a critical care and anesthesia physician that died a few years ago, and John Hines in Ireland, who gave a great podcast on thoracotomy. And he gave the advice of, of have good intentions or do things with good intention. Uh, and I think that's the, the way to practice, not just with thoracotomies, but with, with everything. And keep in mind, as you said, you know, this is a patient we said something catastrophic happened to them. They have, they are in a state of arrest and remember that, you know, when they're in, in that situation, you're not going to make things worse, you know, by intervening, by, by doing a thoracotomy, you're not going to make things worse. They're already dead. And so you have a choice to, to stand there with your hands in your pockets and then do nothing. And then the outcome will be that they die or you have the opportunity, uh, to do something that ultimately may not be successful, but if you've done it with, with the right intentions, with good intentions, you know, that's, that's the right way I think to, to practice whether or not we're going to be successful at it or not. I guess the big take home for me is in traumatic arrest in general is, is that if you, if you're reaching for a, for an ACLS pocket card, you are thinking about this in the wrong way. You need to think about traumatic arrest mechanistically. Why did this happen? What are the underlying ideologies? on a physiologic level as to why this happens and then tailor your resuscitative intervention based on your understanding of the mechanism of arrest for that particular patient in front of you. Our default training back to doing CPR and giving epinephrine, it doesn't make sense physiologically. It doesn't make sense mechanistically. These are difficult scenarios, but I think if we have a good understanding of why this happens and we use that to tailor our approach. And we do things with the best of intentions, even if the success rate may be low, then I think that's the, the best we can do. And I think an approach that we should be proud of. Yeah, that's so well said. That's great, Nick. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. We'll have you back soon. And it's always great to hear from you. Thanks, but I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me.